This is Bias Bender, and I'm Kayla Stokes. Welcome to the first episode of this podcast, where we explore the lives of Black women I think you should know about. As you might have noticed, the history we're taught is usually about white men doing courageous things. As the title of this podcast suggests, I am trying to bend that bias in order to fill in the gaps. So, I'm here to talk about black women doing stuff. And as far as who I am, I'm a young black woman trying to figure out what the heck I'm going to do with my life and how I'm going to do it. I almost see this podcast as research for both you and me so that I can explore examples of black women doing things I never learned about in school. Together, we'll learn about women from the past and the present so we can imagine the future. This week's episode is about Mamie Peanut Johnson. Now, to be honest, I don't follow sports all that closely, but I do know that the MLB just recently started its season. I don't know how long a season of baseball will last in the middle of a pandemic, so I thought now was a great time to talk about Miss Mamie Johnson and her historic baseball career. But in order to talk about Mamie, we have to talk about the Negro Leagues and how and why they came to be. And that means for the first big chunk of this episode, we'll be talking about men and baseball, but context is key. So whenever I want to know something about black history, I usually start with asking my grandpa about it, especially when it has to do with something he might have lived through and remembered. My grandfather is known to wear a lot of hats, and one that I always see come out when it gets hot out is his Negro League baseball cap. So I thought he'd be a great starting place for me as I began to learn about baseball for this episode. Miss Kayla? Yes. Is that you? <laughs> yes. <laughs> how you doing? I'm good. How are you? All right. You have everything under control up in uh, Seattle? <laughs> I think so. <laughs> good, good. Um, so I was wondering if, A, I don't know a lot about baseball. <laughs> um, so I'm trying to figure out more. Um, but I was wondering if I could ask you a few questions and record it so I could maybe put it into the podcast of just, um, just about the Negro Leagues, because I don't really know a lot. Yeah, well, the Negro League, let's see. They had changed. You know, by the time I was a teenager, you know, blacks were, Jackie Robinson got into the um, Major League, was the first black in the Major League, and that was in 1945. Mm-hmm. And around 1945, I think it was 1945, say the truth. Uh, you can look that up. Mm-hmm. So I don't know too much about the Negro League at all. Okay. Because they were, they were breaking up kind of in the 40s. Right. And, you know, and I was, um, you know, I was like eight, nine years old. Mm, okay. You know? Yeah. So but I do I do know that my father played in Negro League in North Carolina. Really? Yeah. I didn't know that. That's your great grandfather, right? Mm-hmm. Now 
name of the team, I wouldn't know. <laughs> okay. Because, you know, we never asked that, you know. Yeah. But I, 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 he never really talked about it much, you know, huh. at all, really. Mm-hmm. I don't know how I even found that out, you know. Hmm. I might have heard him talk to somebody else, you know, mm-hmm. about it, yeah. But, huh. Um, uh, yeah, and I, it, I know it was big throughout, the, especially throughout the South. Hmm. You know, the Negro League. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But I don't know a whole lot about the Negro League. I mean, I knew, well, then, 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 um, what's, um, what's his name? Um, Larry Doby. Mm-hmm. He was, he was the second one. Right. And he was, he was, he came out of Patterson. Okay. New Jersey. Mm-hmm. And he lived in Montclair. You know, and his family is still there in Montclair. Mm-hmm. I knew per, I knew him personally, you know. Right. Uh, and I think he was a coach after he, not a coach, uh, a scout after he uh, finished. Oh. You know, mm-hmm. Football, yeah. I mean baseball. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But but I don't know that much because I was so young. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I didn't know that much about you know the Negro. I knew other Negro league. I think I knew that after they had stopped. Mm, mm-hmm. But I remember when Jackie Robinson got in, and uh, I think I was in camp, and um, that was a big deal. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, that's a great start for me. I mean, <laughs> that gave me more than what I already knew, so. I cut, I cut some articles out a while ago. Mm-hmm. And I ran to in the paper, newspaper. And sometimes I say little things like that, you know. Mm-hmm. Thinking that maybe somebody might like to look at it. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Let's see. Yep, here it is right here. Hmm. This came out in the paper in 2018, December. Oh, no, not December. Yeah, I got some articles here. I can make copies of it and send them to you. And this is where I started. Armored with some hand-clipped articles, access to my alma mater's online library database, and some newfound family connections to the story, I started digging, and here's what I found out. All right. So today we know of baseball as the great American pastime. I went to a few games last summer, and I can confirm that I felt oddly patriotic walking around Yankee Stadium. I got really excited when my face popped up on the big screen, and I cheered for the judge, who, fun fact, is single-handedly the player who converted my grandmother from being a lifelong Mets fan to being a diehard Yankees girl. But... If we go way back to the mid-1800s, we can see that baseball was still growing in popularity. There were a few leagues and associations that mainly consisted of white male players. However, black men did play on teams with those white players. So, yes, there was a time when teams were integrated, not perfectly by any means, but white and black players existed on the same teams in the 1800s. Then came the Civil War, of course. 
and tensions between black players and predominantly white teams quickly escalated. As the 19th century came to a close, so did black men's opportunities to play baseball in the most well-known leagues. Black players resorted to masquerading as native or dark-skinned Latino men in order to have a shot at playing their sport. However, the end of the 19th century saw the outright end to integrated baseball. Black men kept playing baseball, of course. At first, they were playing on traveling teams and drumming up audiences with championship games, such as the Colored Championship of the World, which was held in 1903. The winning pitcher was Rube Foster of the Cuban ex-Giants. 17 years later, in 1920, that's 100 years ago, after many stop-and-start attempts by various black players to start a substantial league, Rube Foster founded the Negro National League. Yay! The initial teams were the Chicago American Giants, Chicago Giants, Cuban Stars, Dayton Marcos, Detroit Stars, Kansas City Monarchs, Indianapolis ABCs, and the St. Louis Giants. This began a period of time where, through their ups and downs, the Negro Leagues that were created in various regions of the country were supported by fans and found great success. This popularity amongst the Negro Leagues peaks in the early 1940s. An estimated 3 million fans turned out to watch Negro League games during 1942. 3 million fans. That's a lot of peanuts and beer. Then, as my grandpa explained, we get to Jackie Robinson and Larry Doby. As you might know, Jackie Robinson officially integrated Major League Baseball by signing and playing with the Dodgers on April 15, 1947. And if I'm doing my math right, that is almost 50 years after baseball was officially segregated. Yikes. And if I'm still doing my math right, that means baseball was desegregated 73 years ago. Yikes again. <laughs> that is not so long ago at all. Later that same season, in 1947, on July 5th, Larry Doby became the second black man to be signed and playing for a major league baseball team when he joined the Cleveland Indians. And, unfortunately, that is still the name of that baseball team. Regardless, these two black men were the first to integrate the National and American Baseball Leagues, respectively. So, as you can expect, they went through a lot. Luckily, I was able to talk with Susan Robinson, who gave me great insight into what it was like for her father, Larry Doby, to hold his head high through the difficulty of integrating baseball. Good morning, Kayla. Good morning, Mrs. Robinson. How are you? I'm good. Please call me Susan. Okay. <laughs> How are you? I'm doing well. Good. You sound just like your mom. Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah. I can't help it. That's okay. That's a good thing. Trust me. <laughs> oh, good. So from, you know, your reading and your research into, you know, your own family, um, what would you say is the most important takeaway? Uh, the most important takeaway, I would have to say, is the, the way that my parents raised us. The fact that the matter of, of all the things that my dad went through and everything that he sacrificed every day when he went to work to make it better for his family, my parents raised us. We saw no color. You don't judge people on the way they look. Mm -hmm. have a conversation and the way they treat you that's the way you treat them I mean when I think about the way that 
my parents could have raised us, it's it's so far from that because, again, that would have never benefited any of us in our lives. You know what I mean? Right. So my father, he, he rose above all of that to make life so much better for all of us. And the thing about it is the older I get, I realize it so much more because, again, when I was a kid, I didn't even realize the impact that my dad had on the world, let alone now. You know what I mean? But like I said, for, for us to be just, for my family to be the way they are, that's all because my parents, obviously my father and my mom, they were just like, you know, we're not going to, what he did, they were able to pull positive out of it and make our lives so much better. Hmm. That's incredible. Yeah. Things that he had to endure each and every day, going to work knowing that he was going to have to go through it, and he just never, he turned his cheek every time. Like, he was doing something to benefit his life and his family and making it better, making it better for us, and he was never going to make anything bad out of the situation. You know what I mean? Right. Because all the things that he could have done, he never even did. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I think that's another reason why he, a lot of people aren't really aware because he didn't, like I said, he didn't really talk much about himself. You know, like if if you knew who he was and you approached him, I mean, he would talk for hours, but he wouldn't, he was never the type of person that would walk in a room and be like, okay, people, do you know who I am? You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> none of that. He was just so humble and so low-key that uh, that's another reason why, like I said, I'm glad and grateful that he was a man that he was, but on the other hand, that's why it's important, like I keep saying this, the older I get, for me to have a chance to speak about him whenever I can, so people can really understand the type of person that he was, you know what I mean? Right, yeah. Did you have a specific moment or or a time in your life where you realized, oh wow, <laughs> you know, he he did all these things? Yeah, I have to probably say it was it was probably around nineteen eighty seven, so I was like what, twenty five years old. And we had gone to Cleveland and that was forty years after he had integrated baseball and they had a ceremony and they um, honored him and everything like that. And to be in a stadium and seeing people cheering for your father based on his accomplishments in baseball I think that's when the bell went off in my head, like, oh, my God, this is all for my father, and this is a big deal, you know what I mean? But like I said, I was I was 25 years old, so it took kind of a long time for me to realize, like, <laughs> wow, this yeah. is a big deal. Yeah, yeah. Wow, that's incredible, though, that that moment happened. Yeah, yeah. I'm wondering uh, if there's any specific stories or legends of um, his time uh, on, you know, out on the field um, that were either told to you by him or by anyone else uh, that have stuck with you? Um, well, I know there's this one uh, actual moment that I, I mean, there's an actual chimp children's book out about it in 1948 when they went to the World Series. Mm-hmm. And he hit a home run in that game, and they actually won the game by the one run. But that was the first time that an African-American played in the World Series, hit a home run in the series. And for him to have won that game, there was an actual picture that came out of 
my dad and the winning pitcher, who happened to be white, obviously, mm-hmm. and they were hugging. They The pitcher hugged my father, and that became one of the most historical pictures in history because that was one of the first times that you ever saw a Caucasian man and African, African-American man embracing each other. So that was a big deal. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, that was if you have anything else that you wanted to share, I'd, I'd love to hear about it. Well, I just want to, again, I just want I just want to relay the fact that, you know, my father was such an icon and such a great person in the eyes of the American public, however you want to say it. But at home, he was just dad. You know what I mean? Like, it's, you know, and it's so funny. Like I said, to realize the impact that he had on the world when the dad I knew, you know, you would never know it. It's not, he wasn't arrogant anything. It was just like, that's, that's what he happened to do. He happened to play baseball for a living. And mm-hmm. along that journey, he made history, you know what I mean? Right. I, I mean, I, I actually, I honestly was just like, why weren't you, excuse my French, I'm like, dad, why weren't you an asshole? Like, the way, the things <laughs> you went through. And again, he was like, Okay, what would that have benefited? Where would where would that have been? Where would we where would we be right now if I decided to react on the things that people were doing? Mm-hmm. You know, it, he wasn't taking away the fact that it, it wasn't easy. It was very hard, but it's almost like he had a mission and and he stayed on that mission and that was it. You know, right? I mean, they would say things about my mom throw baseballs at him on purpose, like you know, run into him and stuff like that, and it's just, I mean, I couldn't even imagine knowing, going to work every day, okay, today I'm going to get hit in the head with a baseball, 90 mm. miles, being thrown me 90 miles an hour. Mm. You know? Yeah, I can't even imagine. Yes, but he did it. He did it. So, clearly, the integration of baseball was no joke. As we heard from Susan, it was so important for all Americans to see black and white players on the same field. But as we were starting to see baseball integrate black men back onto teams, the Negro Leagues really begin to struggle. The victory of being able to play side by side with white players comes at a big price for the Negro Leagues. The all-black teams struggle to stay afloat as the top players set their sights to playing with the newly integrated Major League teams. And this is where Mamie Johnson's story with the Negro Leagues begins. Mamie Johnson was born Mamie Belton on September 27, 1935, in Ridgeway, South Carolina. She grew up running around on her grandmother's farm in South Carolina while her mother worked in Washington, D.C., These early years of her life are when she began playing baseball with friends and family. Along with neighborhood boys, she made baseballs out of rocks and rope and wrapped it all together in tape. And this created her very first training for strengthening her arm and being able to throw a fast ball, even if it was super heavy. And she learned how to play with the boys and keep up with them every step of the way. Mamie lived with her grandmother until she passed away in 1945. Around this time, she moved to live with an aunt and uncle in New Jersey. Shout out to my home state. At first, she tried out softball, 
That ended up being a short-lived stint because she craved a more intense game. So she tried out for the all-white boys team in the area that was organized by the Long Branch Police Athletic Club. They were impressed by her skills, and she became not only the only girl on the team, but also the only black kid on the team as well. During the two seasons she played with the all-white male team, she learned to strengthen her pitching skills and utilize the power of underestimation to overpower her opponents. After her time in Jersey, Mamie moved to live with her mother in D.C. in 1947. While in D.C., she joined a couple of black male Sandlot teams, the Alexandria All-Stars and St. Cyprians. She continued to build on her skills with these teams until she graduated from high school. After graduation, Mamie decided to try out for the All-American Girls Professional Baseball League. Seems like the next logical step for a young woman who had already gained respect in the semi-professional Sandlot scene, right? Well, the all-white women's league didn't think so. Johnson was not even allowed up on the mound to try out. At the same time Jackie Robinson was finally able to play on the major leagues, this young black woman was being rejected from the white female league because of the color of her skin. And yes, that's the league that inspired the beloved movie A League of Their Own. Kind of ironic, I guess. Later on, Johnson looks back on this moment as a blessing in disguise. I read a quote the other day that says, Rejection is redirection. This definitely was the case for young Mamie Johnson. Mamie continued playing ball on the weekends or when she wasn't working to support herself and her family. In 1953, things turned a corner for her baseball career. A scout gave Mamie the opportunity to try out for the Indianapolis Clowns, a Negro League team. So while the white female league wasn't interested in allowing Mamie to play, the black male league was beginning to let women play alongside the men. Now, this is complicated and not necessarily all a fairy tale story of pure female acceptance. In reality, as we discussed earlier, the Negro Leagues were struggling to keep up once the major leagues began integrating black players. The top black men in the Negro Leagues were looking for major league opportunities, and the average black baseball fan was excited to see black players play in the major leagues, leading to a decline in support of the Negro Leagues. So, the folks who were recruiting and trying to keep the Negro Leagues alive looked towards bringing in new and exciting talent. And for the Indianapolis Clowns, that new and exciting talent was Tony Stone, Mamie Johnson, and later Constance Connie Morgan. Mamie Johnson was thrilled to be off the sandlot and playing in the Negro Leagues. She was a pitcher to watch out for during her time on the team. Not only was she one of three of the only women to ever play in the league, but she was the only female pitcher to play in the Negro Leagues, period. The only one. And she more than held her own. Her nickname, Peanut, came from the underestimation she encountered on the field. When she went up to the mound, players would comment on her small 5'2"-ish frame and say, Why, she's only a peanut, I can take her. Well, for the most part, they were dead wrong. And hey, I'm 5'2", and my arms are most definitely not as strong as Mamie's were, but I wouldn't suggest messing with me either. Anyway, Mamie loved her time playing with the clowns. She was able to travel to various cities and play against other teams in the Negro Leagues and some white teams as well. During their travels, the male players often slept on the buses while the three women stayed with local families because 
It was the 1950s, and segregation ensured that while these players were on top of their game, they were still reminded of their second-class citizenship. Unfortunately, playing for the Negro Leagues during their eventual demise wasn't a very secure career path in the end. Mamie was paid anywhere between $400 to $700 a month to play with the league. For reference, Jackie Robinson made around $39,750 in 1952 playing for the Dodgers, which would be a little over $3,000 per month. So while she was able to live out a dream of hers on the team, she decided to retire after her third season. She ended her career with a 33-8 win-loss record and a batting average of between 262 and 284. To be honest, I'm not sure what that means exactly. However, (laughs) my research tells me that those stats put her as one of the best pitchers in the Negro League, so I'll trust that. Upon finishing her Negro League career in 1955, Mamie redirected her life again in order to support her young son and create a career that could give her longevity. She enrolled in North Carolina A&T University, where she was able to study to become a licensed nurse. She went on to have a 30-year career in nursing, all while continuing to work with and coach young baseball players. Talk about versatility. Mamie spent the final part of her life managing a Negro League memorabilia store in Maryland. Luckily, she lived to see her baseball career celebrated. She was honored at the White House by President and Mrs. Clinton. She received the Mary McLeod Buffoon Continuing the Legacy Award. She has a children's book written about her called A Strong Right Arm by Michelle Y. Green. And in 2008, she participated in the Negro League draft, in which she was ceremoniously drafted to the Washington Nationals. Perhaps most special of all, she had a Little League team named after her. With the blessing of a great name, the team of predominantly young black players has gone on to win championships in a widely white-dominated league. Mamie Johnson passed away in 2017 at the age of 82. She was a lifelong baseball lover, and she's taught me to play whatever game I love, regardless of where I'm allowed to play it, and to join the league that respects me. Her story also makes me think about how black people of different genders really have the opportunity to support and uplift each other in our goals. And I wonder how I can do that in my work and in my life. So that's the story of Mamie Johnson. I'm so glad I got to learn more about her story and the history of black people playing baseball in America. And I hope you enjoyed too. The sources I used to research this week's episode are as follows. National Visionary Leadership Project's page on Mamie Johnson and interviews with Mamie Johnson. NPR's article, Remembering DC Negro League's legend, Mamie Peanut Johnson, by Esther Ciamicelli. City Paper's article, We're Starting to See the Impact of Mamie Johnson Little League's Historic DC Championship, by Kellen Soon. Baseball References, Mamie Johnson page. The AAREG's Mamie Johnson biography page. Negro League Baseball Players Association, Mamie Johnson page. History.com's article, Negro League Baseball. Britannica's article, Negro League, by Robert W. Peterson. Smithsonian Magazine's article, Remembering Mamie Peanut Johnson, the first woman to take the mound as a major league pitcher, 
by Bridget Katz. Special thanks, of course, to Ms. Susan Robinson and my grandfather, Julius Garnes. <laughs>